Welcome everybody to the Healing Place podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and excited to have with me today, Dr. Christina Brinkerhoff. So welcome. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Terry. Absolutely. And so I have you down as educational consulting company, but then we also just talked about just a few seconds before I started recording that you're a foster and adoptive parent as well. So we'll dive into both of those things and kind of tie things together. But yeah, so talk to us about um, your role and what it is you're doing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, Hello, everybody. Um, I'm happy to uh, have this conversation with Terry today because it really brings together my role not only as a foster adopt parent, as Terry mentioned, but also as a longtime educator. So I've public ed for about 20 years, uh, spent many years in the classroom, and then took on a, an administrative role at an elementary school and served as principal for 10 years. Followed that up during the time that I was pursuing my PhD with a year as a superintendent. Uh, and then I received a phone call from a longtime friend that asked me to come back to Idaho and um, help support their ed tech company. And their main focus was to build tools that would help educators uh, with this very, very challenging role. And I had actually used one of their tools um, during my time as a principal and decided, you know what, if I had an opportunity to work on uh, ed tech tools that would help uh, breach the challenges between trying to educate the wide range of of children in a classroom um, from underperforming to overperforming and be able to bridge that gap, then maybe that's where I was supposed to be. So about that time, as I mentioned, I'd finished my PhD and uh, we had taken in three um, siblings, three little boys as foster children. And over the course of the next few years, we ended up adopting them. Um, And for some reason, God just knew our family wasn't complete. So he sent us two more little angels and we had finalized their adoption last year. And what I learned during that time is there's such a need um, in these little people for an understanding by educators, by adults, by parents, any caregiver, that when a child is placed in a situation of trauma, um, their brain develops differently. And what I was finding as I was reflecting on all of this, what I was finding is no matter the tools that we give teachers, no matter how great they are, and no matter how amazing a teacher is in a classroom, if we don't have a clear understanding of what's happening to a child's brain, the strategies that we're trying to use are not going to be effective. And I'm going to kind of bring this full circle because what I did when I was a classroom teacher is I oftentimes relied on the power model, carrot and stick with a child. And, and I don't mean stick literally, of course, but what I mean is I need you to comply in my classroom so we can all get along and all learn together. And if you don't, there are certain outcomes, consequences. And that is just our traditional model, which was built off of the industrial age. And for me during school, that worked for me. For many educators and most middle class people, that worked. But for kids that come from tough places, and especially these, the generation of children that are coming through our schools today, power and uh, the power model, carrot and stick, does not work anymore because that is built on the premise that they can access their prefrontal cortex, which is the planning and logic and reason part of their brain. And what I saw year after year after year, and in my own home, it, it was not a 
effective because in those moments of pressure, those babies, they cannot access the part of their brain that says, if I do this, there are going to be consequences. They are just trying to survive. So during that time transition back to Idaho um, and running that ed tech company, I received more and more invitations to come and speak to educators about this information that I just shared with you and help schools and teachers understand what does happen to a child's brain and how they can do things a little bit differently and make a big impact. So over the next probably year and a half, um, this continued to grow and it just weighed heavy on my heart that I was given the opportunity to have these five babies in my home and, and bring them into our world of structure and, and share with them these strategies that I had learned and see amazing differences in their success in the daily life, but also in school. And I'd wake up in the morning just thinking about what other things can I do to help them learn how to self-regulate and be able to access their prefrontal cortex. And more and more, um, my hours were spent thinking and planning and working in that area. And I just happened to get lucky enough to have a company that said, you know, we want to partner with you on this. And so over the next probably six to eight months, I served as their chief academic officer, which I'm still in that role, but I was also given the opportunity to continue to go out and travel and train for schools and educators. Um, and so really what I want to loop back around to, I think, is that background put me in a place where I have this deep level of, of knowledge around trauma and adverse childhood experiences, and really um, a shift in our thinking from poverty being the cause of children not being able to learn to stress being the cause of children not being able to learn. And what we found is when a child is exposed to chronic stress, which is known as adverse childhood experiences, their brainstem is overdeveloped. And so any any perceived or real threat to their safety triggers an immediate response from that brainstem, which causes them to go into that fight, 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 flight, or fear part of their brain. And they more often than not will over respond, whether that's I'm going to withdraw and I'm going to end up under the desk or I'm going to fight you or I'm going to flee you. And so what we have to do is we have to be in a place where educators understand that it is a physiological response. It is not just a child being naughty. It is an actual chemical release happening in their brain and these different uh, neural pathways that are triggered that that. Uh, it displays itself as a behavior and more often than not a misbehavior. And so what we what educators need to recognize is when a child is struggling, we need to ask ourselves, what is happening? What happened to them? What do they need? Instead of why aren't they doing what I need them to do? Yeah. And that changes yeah. our frame to how can I help them versus how can I get them to comply? Yes. Amen and hallelujah to all of the above. <laughs> Yes. Yes. And I apologize because I know, as I mentioned earlier, Terry, I'm just, this is so important. and I'm so passionate about this information because it changes the trajectory for every single child that is struggling, not only in our school systems, but also in our homes. Yes. And I, I, I agree on so many levels. I mean, ACEs one, we, we connected through ACEs connection and, um, yeah, I mean, just in the resilience part of it, and what you're doing is that resilience part. I mean, that that 
helping educators, helping parents with your own children. Um, I just had a friend of mine who was on the show as well, Dr. Janine McConaughey, and she had asked me to make a video. She said, hey, Terry, will you make a little three-minute video about a project we're doing? And it's, a, I think it's One Caring Adult, hashtag One Caring, something along those lines, about, you know, um, that one caring adult in your life. And so it was about my grandma, Kitty. And I got to the end of it and I started crying and I sent it to her. <laughs> it was just raw and real because what a powerful impact this sweet, gentle soul had on my life. And the fact that, um, you know, yes, I, I was going through horrific trauma in my childhood, but and yes, I was having, you know, I understand what you're saying now, the way my brain was developing and those neuro, those, those pathways. And, but now that I've discovered brain plasticity and, oh my gosh, I'm sure that's what you're tapping into is talking about brain plasticity and changing the outcome for these children, which is unbelievable and beautiful. So thank you. My pleasure. Two um, kind of connections that I, I always love making. I, I grew up, uh, in a very, very dysfunctional setting. Um, by the time I was three months old, my parents were divorced and they both suffered years and years of addiction. Um, and, and I believe, truly, I believe the only reason I didn't end up in the foster care system is because I had grandmothers <laughs> that, that, um, while they had their own challenges, they, they weren't dependent on, on alcohol or drugs. And they had stability where whenever things fell apart in my home, whichever home I was in, um, one of my grandmothers would swoop in and, and rescue us and get us clean and get us fed and until yes. our parents got back on their feet. And then, and then we would kind of go through that process again. And oftentimes growing up, people would say to me, how, how are you functioning? when they met my family. Yes. <laughs> my family but I've gotten that. <laughs> yes. How are you where you are today? And until I understood this ACEs stuff and brain plasticity, my answer was, I don't know. Right. I, I honestly have no idea. Um, and, and suddenly it dawned on me, I discovered a library at 13 years old. And I got to know that librarian very well. And I broke every single library rule you could imagine in regards to how many books you can check out. I would go in with my backpack and I would unload these 20 books that she'd let me have for the week. And I would reload 20 more books. And I found safety and connectedness in my, my father was a logger. And so during the summer we would go and camp and I would spend all day in the tent with my book. If oh. I wasn't out playing in the woods. Right. 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 And, and as I, as I gained a better understanding and through my dissertation research of what happens to your brain when you're in a relaxed state and you're enjoying learning and you're building those neural connections, that's where you get up to that intellect piece. And we often thought, well, for many years, we thought, your IQ is your IQ and it is static. And now I know that is not true. And because I was able to build those neural pathways under um, a sense of safety, I was able to access the learning and continue to grow and kind of push past that barrier that would have kept me in that realm of I have to preserve my own safety and my brainstem is my strongest muscle. And so I, I wanna connect that to, I have a daughter, my youngest child, who in kindergarten, her teacher recommended referral for 504 uh, because she thought she had ADHD. And 
because of my learning, I knew it wasn't ADHD, but I also, because of my experience in schools, I knew how the system worked. And so we went through the evaluation process and sure enough, she was diagnosed with ADHD school determination. She was eligible for a 504. We put her on a 504, but we also sought additional testing. And what they did is they did an IQ test and she has a very low IQ. Uh, but what I know is that she has the opportunity to grow that IQ by at least 20 points, which puts her in a low IQ to a trajectory of success, right? And so what we've done is we said, based on that IQ testing and their diagnosis, which was hypervigilance and trauma instead of ADHD, is we know that if we can help her build self-regulation skills and open up those neural pathways through a sense of safety, that her trajectory, her life will be drastically changed. Yes. Every single parent needs this information. Every teacher needs this information. Because what, what I'm guilty of as an educator, and I know what educators are struggling with right now, is we don't know what questions to ask. We don't know the possibilities often. And so we end up saying, what is the easiest way to get this child, not necessarily the easiest way, what is the most accessible way to get this child in a place where they can sit and learn in my classroom? And if it's not medication, which was something they recommended and we refused, I would like to say that, not that we're against medication, Um, but we know to put a five-year-old on medication is not going to be our first choice. Right. So if it's not medication, then it's some type of accommodation, some, some, some type of modification that will get compliance, not necessarily learning. So we've got to get to the point where we say the behavior is a, a way of communicating. It's the only way they know how to get their needs met. So how do we teach them other ways to get their needs met while we help them build those neural pathways? Yeah, beautiful. And I, I mean, again, I love the idea of getting it out there to just all educators and all parents to say, um, and, and empowering the child, when you say, you know, teaching them the skills to regulate their emotions and to regulate and to, and to cope and teaching them the coping skills that they need. Um, oh my gosh, just what a powerful, beautiful gift that is to the child. Uh, thank you, Terry. And like I said, I think every, I know every, every child deserves this, but the next layer of that is every adult deserves this. I don't know how many teachers I would have in my office at the end of the day in tears. They come in in the morning, just completely stressed out because they were afraid of what they were going to face in their first grade classroom. How sad is that, that I'm afraid of these six-year-olds? And so many times I would be called into classrooms that had been completely destroyed by kids that were out of control. And I'd have the kids in tears and I'd have the adults in tears. And all they wanted is to be able to have a sense of safety, both of them. But what we'd end up doing is by the fourth or fifth time this child had destroyed the classroom, I get parent complaints from the other kids' parents saying, my child cannot be in that classroom. They are unsafe because of that other child's behavior. And I'd have teachers saying, I'm not coming to work tomorrow because I'm unsafe. I had kids, I had teachers getting bit and my own hair was pulled out in chunks. And I have a story I always tell people. I had a third grader who when he was a kindergarten, he ate my button off of my sweater as I was trying to keep him safe. He was banging his head on the railing and it was really, he was seeking help. He needed help. We just didn't know what help that was. Right. And we didn't understand what was happening to his brain. 
Yes. I, and I've, I've been there as well. I worked in a mental health agency with children in a school setting and been there for that first grade and second grade classroom where the teacher had to take all the children out of the room because the child was in there throwing a telephone from the desk, teacher's desk across the room and flipping desks. And yes, yeah, I, and I understand. And um, I remember sitting down with that child when we were finally able to get him calm and just asking him if he wanted to draw a picture about what was happening and what he finally drew, um, you know, when he was able to calm himself and we finally got him where he needed to be, um, just broke my heart. And, um, and we were finally, finally able to get him the help that he, he needed. Um, but yeah, here was this little, this little person, this little tiny person who was hurting so much and he just didn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and our traditional response would typically be, we have to have more rules and consequences or behavior plans or some way to help him monitor his behavior so it doesn't disrupt the rest of the learning. And what we found through this, what I found through this ACEs study, as well as how our neural pathways work, is it doesn't matter how great of a plan you have for that kid. In those moments of pressure, they can't access it. I don't know how many times we'd sit down with teachers, special ed teachers, and say, okay, five-year-old Bobby, Joey, whatever it was, um, what is something you want to work for? Uh, Legos, Transformers, a lunch date with the principal, extra time at recess, do you want time on the iPad? And they would pick their favorite thing, and they they were so passionate and motivated to be able to work towards whatever that reward was. And then it would work for the first four or five days, maybe if we were lucky, maybe a day, until there was some pressure that they didn't know how to maneuver through or navigate through. And then that Lego or that iPad or that lunch, it didn't matter because they couldn't get up. That pathway wasn't there that they could get up to even remember what they were working for. And so we would up the consequences or we'd up the, or shorten the amount of time they had to work for it. And pretty soon everything just fizzled out and they were back to kind of ground zero struggling. Not only were they struggling, but then the, the wear and tear on the classroom and on the adults that were trying to support that child, it just becomes overwhelming. I was working with the school district, and just last week they called me and said, my teachers and my administrators are ready to lock out. It's yeah. only October. They're so exhausted. Can you just come in and do some feel-good, hope-building activity with them? Terry, it's October. And the superintendent is calling for help because their educators are worn out already. It, we have to do something different. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, I was going to say that same thing, that the, the burnout rate on educators is just phenomenal. And it's sad. Um, one of my dear friends who was an amazing teacher, we went for a hike recently and I, she, she had left teaching and I said you know do you miss it and she said no and that broke my heart because she used to love it it's heart-wrenching educator after educator will call me and say I don't know what to do please help me I don't know what to do right and again if we rely on what we've always done I believe there's a definition for that right it's like insanity if you keep doing the same thing and expecting different results right right 
and it, and it can't be one more book that we're asking our educators to read. Although I want them to read books, but it has to be something that is common sense and easily accessible. It has to be, here's what you're seeing and this is what's happening to that child's brain and what can you control? So yeah. what I often tell educators is your first priority is self-care. You have to take care of yourself because as a professional, as somebody working with children that are struggling, you have to have your own toolbox and your own skill set to, I need to self-regulate because oftentimes, especially after there's repeat disruptions to teaching and learning, those teachers are already on edge. Their yeah. brain stem is already overactive. So the minute the child is, makes a move that the teacher perceives as threatening to the calm and safety and the learning in the classroom, that teacher is primed to overreact. And we all have good intentions that we're not going to, but we've all been in situations where we do and we wish we would have been able to do things differently. Right. So what I always work with educators, we can do all these things with kids, but until we do something with ourselves and recognize that we are solely in charge of how we respond to this situation, we're never going to have a, a full win-win with that child. Right. So always looping back to, yes, we have to know how the brain works and what's happening to that child and that behavior is communication and how do we figure out what it is they're asking for when they don't have the words to tell us but also how do we take care of ourselves so we're ready for this very very important yet very very challenging role yes absolutely so any myths or facts that you would like to clarify for listeners in regards to either children or trauma or education one of the things I talked about a little bit about, and I'm just now feeling a sense of this absolutely has to be a clear understanding, is it's not poverty that is keeping a child from learning. It is the environment that is often found in a household that struggles financially. And what you'll find in those households, as well as many other households, is stress. If the level of stress is high on that child, on that family, that is when the brainstem is overactive. It is overdeveloped. So they're primed to over respond or overreact to any stimuli that they have a sense of unsafeness with. So if we can really begin to think about it is not a situation of we are in poverty. It is a situation of we are buried in stress. Yes. And how do we help our parents know that information and start addressing the, the indicators that cause stressful homes and stressful situations? Yes, absolutely. And I just, I flash to my own childhood and I think, you know, my, when we had money problems and it was obvious, my mom would work overtime, which meant she wasn't around to try to make ends meet. My dad would become violent. My mom would drink more. I mean, she was an addict. Um, she would go out partying after work with her, with her, co-workers and so there was the abandonment part of it so yeah all of that was piling on to the fact that we just were struggling financially it was so much more than not having money absolutely yeah. i remember a first grade class that came through um, my building and these kids were born right around 2009 and we all know what's happened around that time and in our in our society in our world right everybody was losing their job the stress levels were going way up these babies were born and by the time they hit first grade it was the most challenging group of kids that I've experienced in my 17 years in schools and the conversations I was having with my administrators my colleagues they were saying the same thing what is happening with these first graders Right. As a district, 
as a district, we had to go out and get more people to come in specifically with this level of kids, these first graders across the district, because they came in without the ability to self-regulate. And what we know now, and I thought at the time, wow, this is fascinating that this is an entire generation, an entire grade level that's struggling. But when you looked at what they went through early, not only in utero, because we know parental stress, stress on the mother is actually through this, the uh, process of epigenetics <laughs> ingrained into the DNA of their children. So kids that are, parents that are going through very, very stressful times while they're pregnant have kids that come out into this world already primed for stress. And when we start to think about that as what can we do, what can we do to address the, these high levels of stress in a world now today where we are overwhelmed with addiction, single parent households, lack of resources, overwhelmed educators, stressed out parents, what can we do to come together to start attacking each of these challenges, not only as a poverty issue, or a somebody else's fault, somebody else's issue, but as, as a society, as a community, come together and say, this is our issue, and there are things that we can do about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So are you, do you have a program that you run? You, are, are you out there addressing this in schools, and are you doing it just locally or nationally? So it's somewhat in its infancy still, although building very, very quickly. Um, and so what, what I'm doing right now is I'm in several different states, primarily in the Pacific Northwest. I'm actually traveling to Atlanta um, next fall to speak at the Innovative Schools Summit. And so I'm starting to spread across the United States. Yay. Um, and what I've done is I'm, I'm in the middle of building a, I want to say a program that is very, very simplified. Because what I found as an educator and what teachers are telling me now is we don't have time. We can't even come up for air to learn new curriculum and new processes while we're trying to support this classroom full of kids that are really struggling. Right. So I've dug into all of the research and I've pulled out these pieces of what can I do? What can we do um, that gives a teacher a quick win? as they're helping kids build these neural pathways. So I would say coming soon. <laughs> yeah. What I've tried to do is really um, combine brain science, uh, what happens with the neural pathways, the polyvagal um, theory, as well as, um, I guess behavior management would be a key. And I don't even, I hesitate because I don't like the word behavior management. It's how do we teach kids how to self-regulate? And yeah. it all comes back to the attachment theory and those levels of development where if a child missed a certain uh, stepping stone in those, in those six main areas of how they attach and build social emotional learning skills, you need to go back to that layer. You need to go back and say, they didn't get this at this piece. So what can I do? What are those strategies? How can I teach them about regulation and engagement or communication? Maybe it's a language barrier. But then the other piece I've layered on there, which we often miss, is everything, all communication comes through sensory input. And if a child has a challenge in one of those areas of sensory uh, digestion, then that could be what's keeping them from being able to be successful or communicate their needs. So it can't just be it's a behavior issue or it's a uh, neural pathway issue or it's a 
teaching or a parenting issue. It has to be there. As humans, we are so dynamic and there are so many layers of how we uh, process incoming information. And then through that processing of that information, output in a in communication, whatever, whether it's verbal, nonverbal, our behavior, uh, written communication, and understanding that it is a organic, dynamic, messy process. But there are certain things that if we have a clear understanding as educators and parents and caregivers, that we can begin to, to address each one of those in order to remove that barrier for each child. Yes. And, and what instantly popped into my head was how building these toolboxes, I used to tell the kiddos that I would work with, you know, we're going to build these toolboxes of, of strategies. And the more that we can build these, I, I just envision these gigantic toolboxes that, that school staff and teachers and parents and children can all dive into and find that thing that works because no child is a cookie cutter pattern. And what's going to work for one is not going to work for another or what may work one day for another child may not work the next, but that's the empowerment piece of it. In my opinion, is that um, we, we then arm everyone with this, these amazing tools to be able to then, learn how to re-regulate themselves and learn how to cope and learn and learn to understand when they're being triggered. Um, you know, I had someone recently talk about when teachers can model that for children and say, you know what, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed right now and I need five minutes and be able to do that. Um, I think it's just beautiful. Well, and it brings me to a very poignant piece that we have to stop treating little kids like adults. We expect little kids to know what respect is and to be able to self-regulate. More often as adults, we cannot do that. So we use, we use uh, coping mechanisms, some good, some not so good, right? <laughs> in order to self-regulate and function in work and in everyday life. But somehow we expect little kids that don't have access to those coping mechanisms to be able to do that, to sit still for 45 minutes during right. a lesson with a teacher. We have to get back to saying kids are babies and their growth and their learning is part of their development. They have to be able to play. Well, what I know is you look at what we've done in schools and we've gotten rid of recess and we've gotten rid of music and we've gotten rid of art. And what we didn't understand is those things, those, the, the, Physical movement with art and the creativity uh, with uh, PE and recess and the creativity with art, that's what opens up those pathways and builds those connections. So when a child is exposed to new concepts, new learning, ABCs, one, two, threes, what happens is that comes into your working memory. And lo and behold, because I've had the opportunity to build or to play and build these pathways, that information has the opportunity to connect with other learnings, previous learning and future learning. And then suddenly I'm able to log that information into my long-term memory. And tomorrow morning when I come to school, I remember what you taught me versus I don't have the pathways and you can teach me the best information, the most fascinating 45 minute lesson. And if my brain is not open to digest that information, it doesn't matter how long and how hard you teach it to me. 
You're going to have to teach it over and over and over. And Dr. Karen Purvis, she, I, out of her research or research that she found, um, exposed that you can teach a child a new concept and repeat it 12 times. 12 times, no more, four to 12 times, under a sense of safety and a feeling of love and joy in your classroom or in an interaction with your parent, your child. Or you'll have to repeat that up to 400 times when they are not in a state of safety. And I always tell my teachers, do you want to repeat this 400 times? Right. Or four times, <laughs> or 12 times. So if we can get joy and fun and love back into our classrooms and back into our homes, we're all going to feel a whole lot better about this teaching and learning thing. Yes. But what we're doing is we're burning ourselves out on repeating things 400 times, and we're frustrated because kids aren't learning it when we aren't understanding that the way that we're doing it, it doesn't matter how good or how many times we do it, their brains are not ready for it. Right. But we have to get back to understanding that play and art and fun and recess, physical activity, get those kids up out of those chairs. You know, we ended up doing flexible seating, which as you can imagine, is a far stretch from straight rows, you know, individual desks and, and and straight rows to where do you want to sit what's yeah. where where are you comfortable you want a beanbag let's get a beanbag you want a stool let's get a stool you want to stand up let's let you stand up and let's learn in our classrooms how to understand that different kids need different things at different times and we can work together in order to make everybody comfortable have a sense of safety and we're only going to have to repeat this fraction lesson no more than 12 times versus 400 yeah. <laughs> because every brain has the opportunity to be primed for learning when we create classroom cultures and homes that are about love and safety and security and when it all comes down to is are we safe whether we're adults or kids, because if there's not a sense of safety, real or perceived threats, create this barrier to any love and any connection. Because we all know relationships and connectedness are right smack in the middle of your brain between safety and learning. And so if you build those pathways through connection and relationship, again, you're opening up the opportunity for kids to access that learning part of their brain and store that information in long-term memory. Whether it's content, math, reading, writing, or whether it's socially, how do I get along with other people? How do I love other people? How do I have empathy for other people and compassion? Because if I can get to that understanding, I also understand I need to have love and compassion and self-care for myself whether I'm five or whether I'm 55 or 105. Yes. And what, what immediately came to my mind was the whole resilience part of it and that factor in how critical teachers are in being that resilience or, or possibly being that resilience person um, in a child's life. Because, you know, research is showing, as I know you know, because you worked on that, <laughs> is that those coaches, those teachers, those grandparents, those people that are there present in that child's life who do provide that sense of love, as you said, love in a classroom, that, that sense of, um, of compassion, wow, what an impact that has on a child who may be in a stressful and traumatic environment. It's, it's personally, I have an ACE score of nine. 
And the only thing that has me sitting in this chair having this conversation with you, Terry, is schools and learning. Because in school, I found not only physical safety, I was warm, I was fed, things I didn't have at home, but I also had a sense of emotional safety. These people were nice, right? They were loving, they were caring. And people often ask me, who was your favorite teacher? And I honestly don't have a favorite teacher because the educator, all these faces, all these men and women that were part of my learning and part of school became a positive um, figure in me understanding that just because I was born into a life of poverty and addiction and, and withdrawal and challenges doesn't mean I'm stamped with that's my trajectory and that's where right. I'm going head. So they gave me hope. And I believe hope is the key to resilience. Because if you have hope, then you can dream, right? And you can see something different. So if, if we are in a situation where there are more and more kids coming through that don't have hope, they don't have a sense of hope. And we're in a situation where we can give that to them by by seeing a little deeper, by understanding that teaching is not just about letters and words and numbers. It's about the emotional space that we're creating for these kids. Yes. And if we can teach them about their own emotions and, and how to build on that hope and how to key into resilience, the opportunities are limitless, not only for these kids, but for our society. I, I hate to be a doom and gloom, but I'm scared, right? I'm scared about what's going to happen in the next 20 years. Every day you turn on the news and this opioid crisis here and oh this lawsuit gosh, yeah. here. And I look at, I look at the babies that we've adopted out of foster care and they're just two families, two stories of neglect caused by addiction. And these are five kids out of a total of 13 kids in these two families that have all been in foster care and all been adopted. And you think about that's just one story in lowly little Idaho. Right. <laughs> how many, how many other stories are out there and they just keep building because once, once the adults, the parents become dependent on a coping mechanism that helps them address the same thing we're talking about for these little people, right? They don't have the neural pathways. They don't have the connection. They don't have the resources that they need. When we have more and more parents that are removed from the ability to parent and attach and bond and create a sense of safety and self-concept for their children, then what we end up getting is generation after generation of kids that don't have grandparents like you and I did, right? right. That save us. And I look at these babies and if their grandparents were not addicted and in not, um, not able to swoop in and scoop them up and take care of them, they wouldn't have ended up in the foster care system. I would be sad because they're now my children and I right. love them. Dearly. But every child deserves the opportunity to stay with their biological family, every single one. And so we've just got it. We have to do this differently. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So I want to ask you one of my favorite questions only because I love the answers. If you could meet anyone in the world dead or alive to help you with your continued journey and whether that's your personal journey, your professional journey or both, who would it be? 
Oh, Terry, that is a tough question. <laughs> oh boy, dead or alive. So I might answer this two different ways, and you can edit out any of this that. No, <laughs> answer any way you'd like. I really come back to I would love to meet every single parent when they were a child. Oh. And I would love to help them recognize that it isn't their fault that they are going to struggle with what they're going to struggle with. And there yeah. are things that they can do as a child that will help them be successful as an adult. And I look at my own life story. And if you would have asked me when I was seven or eight or up to really the age of 13, I was pretty darn naughty. <laughs> <laughs> you would have asked me if I would have been sitting here having this conversation with you with a PhD and the opportunity to open up my home and change the trajectory for these five kids and hopefully millions of other children, I would have told you you're completely crazy, Terry. There's no way. There's nobody in my family that has ever even thought about the opportunity or had the hope or had the dreams to get to that level. I have four generations on my mother's side, every single one of them dropped out of high school and had babies by the time they were 16 years old. Wow. And my mother was married over 11 times. Nobody really knows the exact number of times that she was married. And she, as an adult, was just desperately seeking that sense of self-concept and love. She didn't know how to love herself, let alone people she tried to start back over with every single time. So maybe that's my answer. If I had the opportunity to meet anybody dead or alive, I would, I would love the opportunity to meet my mother when she was a baby and oh. give her the opportunities that she deserved. At the age of 59, she passed away from complications of cancer and a lifelong history of drug use and alcoholism. And she deserved so much better. Yeah. How beautiful. What a beautiful answer. Thank you for that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Wow. That, that, that one got me. That's beautiful. So any, any other subjects that you want to touch upon that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Yeah, I just, I feel like I didn't spend enough time on helping educators take care of themselves. But one of the key points that I, whenever I go out and do a presentation or a training is yes, we have to understand what's happening to a child's brain and what's going on for those children that are in your classroom struggling. But more importantly, Terry, as, as adults, as humans, we have to figure out ways to remove the level of stress that we've created for ourselves. You know, we have to get to the, the point where I think, the Buddhist belief uh, is, is you have to find a way to be happy in the moment because if you, don't, if you can't be happy in the moment, you're always going to be seeking something different. And you see that play out in our culture today. I always have to have a better car or a nicer purse. or <laughs> So that means I have to work more in order to get more money, in order to get more happiness. And so if we could come back to, as human beings, recognizing that those external things, those things we try to collect are just creating more and more stress for us the the sense of guilt then that we layer on ourselves because we can't keep up or we're we're overworked or overstressed and so then we feel guilty and we layer that back on which just is this vicious cycle we've got to get back to the place where we give ourselves grace we yeah. take we take care of ourselves and we recognize that happiness is in the moment imagine what that would do for you as a person 
for for every educator if they can just be happy in that moment and find that sense of self-care and and try to release some of that guilt because you know as educators and caregivers what we end up doing is we can't solve everybody's problems and we we have this kid that's throwing chairs in our classrooms and we blame ourselves at some level and if if we can gain this these uh tool sets and like you said the 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 tool belt <laughs> and and get these resources in there that not only help us take care of ourselves but prime us to be able to help take care of these little people whether they're in our homes or in our classrooms yes absolutely i agree i saw something came across my facebook page the other day and it was a school that had made created like a um oh a meditation room or something a calming room for teachers right and a lot of the comments that i because i always find it fascinating to read comments on articles and what about the children what about the children what about the children well honestly that room for teachers is about the children. It, it's not just a room for teachers to escape for 10 minutes on their, or take their lunch hour to, you know, this is about teachers calming themselves and bringing themselves to a place of peace and tranquility and um, learning those skills of self-care so that when they step back into the classroom, it is about the children. Absolutely. I always tell a story. You know that analogy when you're in a when you're in an airplane and you have a baby on your lap and the warning notice comes across and the oxygen mask drops and most people's tendency would be to put the oxygen mask on the baby first. Right? Yeah. You got to, the baby has to have oxygen. And what I always say is if the baby has oxygen that's great, but if you don't have oxygen and you aren't living, who's going to take care of that baby? And so I, one of my taglines with teachers is I'm, my work is about providing oxygen masks for educators because we have to give them permission to take care of themselves and realize that if they take care of themselves, that's the best way to take care of these children. Yes, that's, yeah, that's my point. It's like, yes. oh my gosh, let these, let these educators do what they need to, to bring themselves to a place of calm and um, self-care and yes because wow does that translate in the classroom and children are amazing little creatures they they pick up on that energy and if you if a teacher is walking into a classroom wanting to engage and love these children and and, and give them everything that they can those kiddos know that yes but they if they're overwhelmed and stressed and that's triggering those children because they're coming you know especially the children who have are coming from a traumatic household or, or a household with that level of stress already heightened. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It just makes it that much more difficult for them to learn. So. It does. And the secondary stress, when you think about what those teachers are going through day after day yeah. and then recognizing that that stress is causing over 14,000 chemicals to pump through your body on a daily basis and causing you to feel the way that you're feeling. And I believe it's Angela Watkins work, uh, her book Awakened really talks about the health outcomes for educators and how it is the most challenging and lowest reward, which people will argue with you there, but tangible reward professions, but it's the highest demand and the lowest control profession. So when you layer those two things or four things really over this job of a teacher, and we wonder why, why educators are so exhausted and leaving the profession at alarming rates. Right, right. So we, we have to get back to, we can't change 
some of the things you have control over externally, but how do we help teachers understand what they do have control over internally? And that starts with self-care and self-love. And quit feeling guilty. Quit feeling guilty. (laughs) I love it. And I agree. Amen. (laughs) All right. Well, it has been, we're good on time. Wonderful to have you here on the show and joining me to talk about all of this. Uh, How can people get a hold of you if, if they want to? Absolutely. So probably the best way to contact me is at my email, which is drklbrinkerhoff at gmail.com. Also, I do uh, make my phone number available, which is 208-565-6165. I love hearing from stories. Please feel free to contact me either way of the or any one of those options will work just fine. I look forward to hearing from your audience. Awesome. That's wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the work you're doing and shining the light of hope into the world of of trauma and education. My pleasure, Terry. And I just have to say, none of this, this communication process would be possible without you. So it really comes back to the work that you're doing. And I remember reading a response um, from one of your earlier guests, and they really talked about it's like having a conversation with an old friend. And I would have to second that, Terry, because I feel like I've just sat here and had this, I should have had a cup of tea or something. Right. <laughs> I'm sitting at the coffee shop. <laughs> Yes, I've truly enjoyed our time and it's so refreshing and and just kind of renewing to be able to have a conversation about something that I am absolutely so passionate about and almost a kindred spirit on the other end. So thank you so much. So very true. You know, I score... I score an eight out of 10 and and the other two are kind of gray because one of the questions is, you know, did your mother experience a gun or a knife, you know, violence towards her? And it was actually reversed. My mom tried to kill my dad with a butcher knife. So I call that my gray ninth. And then she was arrested and taken off to jail and went away for a little while. Um, So it wasn't parent incarceration. So that's kind of my gray tenth. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I get it. And but I love it that you know, you and I are examples of overcoming and saying that that ACEs score, it, while it's a great indicator and, and can help us learn so much, that, that resilience portion of it is just, it's so important. Um, so very important. Educators are, are a big part of that. So yeah. Absolutely. Well, bless you so much, Terry. I've really enjoyed our time together. I have too. I'll do a quick little close out here. Everyone, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. And until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye.